Good afternoon. We're going to go ahead and get started here. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. This session is about moving and raising a family overseas. So we're so glad to see that it's not just us big people this afternoon, but we have some little ones in our midst. So welcome. I'll sh my name is Melissa Phillip, and this is my husband, Christo. And we have been serving at Duncan Hospital in Roxall, Bihar for the past three years. Um, so I'll just start by going over a little bit of our objectives for this session and what we're going to be sharing with you. We're going to talk some about the practical advice we have gathered over the years about planning a move overseas, especially with a family. We're also going to talk about some of the things that have been helpful for us over the years in terms of helping ourselves and our kids adjust to our new place of living and also come to a point where they were really thriving and learning to call that place home. We're going to talk about the ways that we have worked to balance the demands of life at a hospital, a mission hospital, especially with how huge those demands are and also the needs of our kids. And finally, we're going to talk about just some of the overarching principles that were recommended to us as we sought to minister cross-culturally with our children. So I want to introduce you to our family. Uh, this picture is a couple of years old, so they've gone a little bigger. Uh, but uh, uh, the one in the middle, that's our daughter, Karna. She's 12. And then the one in red, that's Luke. He's 10. And then Vivek is uh, 7. Um, I wanted to just... To give you some perspective on where we're coming from, I wanted to share a little bit of our story, and that'll help you to kind of put some context into what we're talking about, some of the uh, lessons we have learned. Um, for the longest time, you've always known that uh, we wanted to go to India to work and serve in a mission hospital there, and that's kind of what we've been praying for for many years. And in 2011, we kind of made our second division trip and found a hospital on the border of India and Nepal. And uh, this is where we were, right on the border. It's about a half a kilometer from the Nepali border, in a state called Bihar, which is the poorest state in India, and uh, that's the hospital we felt that the Lord was uh, calling us to go to. So um, I finished my training at the Mayo Clinic. I did my uh, MD there, and after that I did my uh, training in emergency medicine at UT Southwestern. And it was during my third year that we went and uh, visited this hospital and felt that the Lord was asking us to go there. And uh, so when we came back, and uh, we actually uh, took about two years to pay off our loans and to get ready to go. And uh, uh, during those two years, I worked as part-time faculty at the university as in emergency medicine and the rest in the community. And all this time, we were playing and planning and eliciting the vast majority of the work in terms of getting us from here to there. And a lot of what I'll be talking about is actually Melissa's and, uh, and many of the lessons that she's learned. Uh, so we actually moved our family in June of 2013 uh, to work at this mission hospital. And we had been there for the past three years. Uh, a little bit about the place and what we were doing. Um, it's a 230-bed hospital, so a fairly large mission hospital. Um, I'm trained as an emergency physician, but there wasn't an intensivist there, so I took over the ICU. So I managed a 10-bedded ICU, and along with that, supervised the care of the emergency patients that came to the emergency department. And really, our family as a whole, our mission was really twofold. Uh, one was to be able to train the young doctors that came to us, both professionally and spiritually, to be able to mentor them and guide them. Uh, many of them would come from anywhere from a year to two years and spend time with us. And the second part really was to be able to mentor and train the nurses that were working with me in the ICU and the emergency department. And we'll talk a lot about how our family as a whole worked on being able to make sure they were mentored well. Um, and really the plan for us was that we would be in India long term, that we would be there probably for the rest of our life. That's a commitment we had made. Um, but unfortunately in April of this year, uh, we left the country to go to a conference in Greece to teach. And when we came back, uh, Melissa and the kids were allowed to return back in. Uh, but when they got there and they scanned my passport, uh, even though I was born in India, uh, they told me I was no longer welcome, and they told me I had an hour to leave the country, and so we were deported out of the country. And Melissa and the kids had the very hard job of trying to gather what we could and put our life back together and to go back to our home and get what she could pack in a suitcase. And so since end of May, we've been back in the U.S. kind of figuring out what our next steps are and you know, if the Lord will allow us to return back there or not. So not what we had planned, not uh, what we had expected at all, uh, but many of the things that went through and some of the things that we did, I think, helped make that transition, this very unexpected transition back to the U.S., uh, more bearable. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So that's a little bit of our story and how we're here. So we wanted this to really be a practical talk for you because that was always my question. Every time I came to this conference, I was like, I get it. I get the vision. I get the need. But how in the world do I actually get us to living in a different country? And so I really wanted this to be just full of ideas for you of things that I learned from others um, and things that we found that worked or didn't work for us. 
So the very first thing we would recommend that you do is that you actually look at your calendar and set a departure date for what day you're getting on a plane to go to your country of service. We kept looking at the calendar, and then we would say, oh, dear, so-and-so is getting married. Oh, dear, so-and-so is having a baby, and that kept happening. And so eventually we just had to say, you know what, on June the 12th we are getting on a plane, and we know we are going to miss weddings and babies and wonderful things, but that's part of the reality of a life in missions. And so that was the first thing that we did that kind of set everything else in motion as far as the work of getting ourselves moved overseas. Um, however, even though you, you'll never have that magical blank space in your calendar, there are some things we would highly recommend you consider. Um, think very hard about your home church. So if you have a sending church that has an annual missions conference and you get on the plane three days before their annual missions conference, you're going to break a lot of hearts in your home church. So think about those people that are sending you off, and if there's anything special they have planned coming up that they would like you to be at. Another thing that will have a huge impact for those of you with kids is school schedules. You're thinking both about your home country's school schedule. When is school ending? Are we coming up to any big holidays that would be a good time to transition? But also there's a good chance you're transitioning into a school system that is not run on the U.S. school calendar. And so you need to be talking to people in that country and saying, you know, when does school start? When are the big school holidays to help plan that out? Um, and then think very carefully about your host country. So if you are moving to a country with a rainy season and there's two months of mud in every calendar year, that is not a good time to land in your host country. We speak from experience. Um, another thing to think about, in some countries there are major national holidays where everybody in that country is going to be flying and training and busing everywhere. You do not want to add your family to the travel demands on the system. And then another thing to think about is holidays can have that impact even in the city you're coming to. So we're going to show you a quick clip of the city we were living in. you're going to or doing are going to have a big impact on you. That's also a factor for us when there's a national election. Again, that's not a good time to travel. And then finally, you'll need to be thinking about your career and about if your training is finishing, what your board certification process looks like. In our case, Krista was done with his training, but we intentionally waited to leave until he had completed all the exams to get board certified in emergency medicine. So you've set your date. Now you're faced with some big decisions. These were the things that really took all my brain power. <laughs> uh, so first of all, housing. What are you doing with the house you're currently living in in the United States? If you're renting or leasing, you might be lucky because you might have a lease ending around the time of that date you picked. Um, but you might not be leasing. You might have purchased a house. And so then you're going to be needing to make those decisions about when am I putting this place on the market? Um, another possibility would be to consider renting a home that you own, and that's actually the path we ended up taking after talking to many, many people that said, if you can hold on to a house in the U.S., that can prove to be your home base over the years. And we'll talk a bit about that later as we talk about what the transition of this year brought to our kids. So you've decided, you know, I'm moving out on this date. Um, now you have to deal with your stuff. You live in the United States of America, so you have way too much stuff. <laughs> I can guarantee this. Regardless of where you're moving overseas, you have too much. So you need to start a process of just dealing with that and thinking about what do I own that is useful in my country of service? What do I just need to drop off at Goodwill tomorrow? Um, for us, some major factors that impacted those decisions were the climate of our host country. For about half of the year, North India is extremely humid, muggy, sticky. And so we chose to leave all of like the sentimental things we had, like our wedding invitations, photos of the kids when they were babies. We left them in our house in the U.S. because we just could not see them surviving well in the muggy climate of North India. Um, another thing that we learned to our great happy surprise was 
Amazon and eBay are all over the world now. And so we didn't know this when we left. So we actually took some things we didn't need to take because we didn't know about this. So look into your country of service and see if Amazon and India and eBay have beat you to that place. They beat us to India. In a lot of countries, Alibaba is another big online retailer. So what we found was a lot of the things we needed to make our home livable, we could have bought from Amazon once we got to India. Um, so if that is a possibility for you and if you have some you know, good options as far as receiving mail, that can really help you get set up to live there. Uh, so as you're doing all this sorting, the big thing you'll have to figure out is what actually do you need, like, the first couple of weeks you're living in the country. That's what you need to pack in your suitcase and fill up all your free luggage with. Then there is also the possibility you could ship some things, which is what we ended up doing. Some people do a whole container. We actually just did a number of boxes. Um, but you need to make sure as you do that that you're shipping things that you won't necessarily need for the first few months. Um, another thing that we ended up realizing as we were going through this process was when you're leaving, you might have a little bit of a feeling like you're saying goodbye to everybody forever. And so as we were packing, then we started to have friends say, oh, remember, I'm doing that rotation in November. I could bring a bag for you. And so at the very last minute, I was like, oh, right, right, right. We're not saying goodbye to everybody forever. And so we ended up leaving a couple of bags with people, things that we knew we needed in the winter, but we were coming to India in the summer. And so we said, oh, we can live for a few months without those things, but people can help us by bringing them to us. Um, so you've dealt with your stuff now. The other big thing for us was we had to figure out what to do about our cars. Um, so some people choose to sell their cars. Another possibility, if you're only going to be gone for a year or two years, another possibility is maybe you have a friend, a neighbor, a family member that you could loan your vehicle to so that when you transition back to the U.S., that's not another huge weight on your shoulders. Um, and in our case, we actually we had an older car, and so we just gave it away to a neighbor that was needing a vehicle, and it ended up being the simplest choice for us. We didn't have to m mess around with the selling of it, and she was willing to wait until literally the day we were driving to the airport to pick up the car. Um, and then finally, you will have to think about your pets. So... You might be able to take them with you, but you'll need to do a lot of looking. I wanted desperately to take our pets to India, but it was too complicated. Um, but maybe for your country of service, that is a possibility. Um, you could rehome them. My recommended path is to speak to all of your friends and family and convince one of them to borrow your pet. <laughs> and so we had two young people in our lives that... We knew that one wanted a dog and one wanted a cat, but they were not willing to make the long-term commitment. And we said, guess what? Our first term in India is going to be around three years. Could you do a three-year commitment? And they both said yes. And so our cat went to a person from our church, and our dog went to a neighbor. And then literally when we ended up getting deported, the kids were so upset, and they were like, we have to go get cuddles and daisy. <laughs> and so that was like our top priority when we landed in the U.S. after the deportation this year. So a couple of things to think about when you're packing to leave, and I'll say that I did very little of the packing. She did the vast majority. So there are things that I saw her do, that I heard about, <laughs> but I think they worked really well because all the things I ever wanted, they were there because Melissa had packed it well. Um, so one thing is to consider finalizing your packing in advance of departure date, and it will literally give you mental space. What we mean by that is we had pretty much all of our boxes packed about four weeks before we left, and that was such a huge relief because the last four weeks are very emotionally difficult time. Right? You're saying goodbye to lots of friends and family, and the last thing you want to do is spend that time packing a bunch of stuff away. So that getting that all of our packing done four weeks before we left, then we had several weeks just to spend time with family and friends and to say goodbye to them and to grieve the loss that our kids were going through. So I think that would really be helpful and something that we encourage you to do. Um, Second thing is to leave luggage space. Uh, what we found is that if you pack your luggage completely full, uh, what you'll realize is that when people come to say goodbye to you, many of them will bring you extra stuff, okay? And there are really sweet things and you know, little toys for your kids, books for them to read, and you feel really bad, you know, saying, sorry, we can't take them with us. And so that was something we had to learn is that 
I would say, you know, leave half a suitcase, uh, carry on, leave it empty, so that when all these things come to you, you have an extra place to put them, so they can come along with you. Because it's really sad for the kids when they have this really new toy or this new book and say, "Sorry, there's no space to put them inside the luggage." So having that extra space is really helpful, and I think that's something that we learned during that process. Uh, third thing to remember is that expect that if you're going to ship something via ship, nothing that you ship will ever get there on time. Okay, so for example, we ship things, and they told us in six weeks it'll arrive in India. And we said, "Oh, great!" But we weren't really certain, so we said, "Okay, we'll just put things in there that we don't necessarily need immediately, but we'd be happy to have them." And so you can see, there were, I think we had shipped 27 boxes. It was maybe a five foot by four foot section of boxes, and most of this was just books and some toys and some old shoes, things like that for the kids. And uh, it was good we weren't expecting them because they only showed up to our door five months later. Right? So if you're planning your life about getting these containers to you so you can start your life, it's not going to work. So instead, pack what you need for the first few months in your suitcase, and then anything that you might think, oh, it would be nice to have, but I don't need them immediately, or I'm going right now the summer season, but the winter season is coming in six months, so I can pack my heavy clothes, put that in the container, so that when winter comes around six months later, hopefully your ship will have arrived and you'll have clothes to wear. And finally, uh, involving others in packing after your sorted items. Uh, what we mean by that is there will be lots of friends and family that really want to help you during this time. You know, they want to be part of your process of helping you to go and excited. But most of them really don't know what exactly you need. So what you can really do that will make it easier for them and to use their help wisely is to go through first and categorize your items. This stuff I don't need. This stuff is going to go to Goodwill. This stuff can go in the container. And this stuff I need to put in my luggage. Once you've done the mental work of sorting things out, which Melissa did that for months before we left, as far as figuring out which is going to go into what category, then when friends came and told us, hey, we want to help you pack, it was very simple. We just said, hey, this pile here has got to go to Goodwill. Can you take that over there for us? Oh, we'd be happy to. Or this pile has to get packed in the container box. Can you get that packed for us? Because once Melissa had already made that decision, they could do whatever they wanted with as far as packing it together, as far as her, her having to be there to kind of Walk them through, oh, this one I want to pack, this one I would have taken a lot longer, a lot more stress. Something to encourage you is to sort your items first, and when friends come over, let them do the work of packing them into suitcases for you. So now you're kind of at the point in your process where you have left the U.S. and you're working on your travel plans. Um, one thing we really encourage you to do is to make sure that you build into your schedule time to travel slowly. We find when we travel to India that we need to rent a hotel room for several days in Delhi, which is the Indian city we fly into, because it's about a day of flying just to get to India. And then once we land in India, we have another full 24-hour train ride to the place where we live. And so, especially with kids, doing jet lag on a train is no fun. <laughs> so we encourage you to... You know, say, okay, we're landing in our host country at this time, but we're going to stay, like, a lot of times it's the capital city. We're going to stay in the capital city for a couple of days, give ourselves and the kids time to get over jet lag. Um, and then, by the grace of God, we've never lost a bag, but we also always thought, well, if we ever lose a bag, it'll have a couple days to catch up with us. Because if once we're on the train, there's no going back. So that's the first thing. Start off by building in that time. And then sometimes you have the urge, which I totally sympathize with, to just get to your, place, your new home and to start running around like crazy. You have to build in time, though, to, again, force yourself to slow down and take it one step at a time. So um, in our case, um, we found that... It took us several weeks just to get unpacked and also to set up our home. We had a home provided for the hospital, but then there was a lot of work we actually had to do once we got there. And you're also, this is the time when you're also doing that figuring out of where exactly do I go to buy groceries? Where exactly do I go to buy soap? Um, in our case, we just buying the appliances, if we had it to do over again, we would have built in about two weeks to dedicate just to getting appliances. At that point, we were in language school living on top of a mountain, and all the appliances were down on the mountain, but they were often out of stock. So we ended up having to go down the mountain many times to eventually find an in-stock, this is a refrigerator, refrigerator, and then we had to hire a man to put it on his head and walk up the mountain <laughs> to us. So it was a long process that was one of the points when we really felt like we were at the breaking point because we 
just didn't have enough time. Um, and then another thing that could be helpful for you is if you have a family member or a friend that might be willing to travel with you and stay with you for the first few weeks, that can really be a blessing. We had a family friend that had actually come to help with homeschooling the kids while I went to language school. But what I didn't realize, I had told her verbally in the U.S., oh, you'll just be waiting around for me to go off to language school. That didn't actually happen. What happened was I had to do all this running around of getting those appliances. And so it was really a blessing to have Joanna there and to be able to leave the kids with her and not have to drag them all over North India while we were trying to set up our life. So if you have people in your life that would maybe consider coming with you, really start kind of priming the pump to encourage them to actually do that. Um, and then some other things that you'll need to make decisions about that will have a big impact on your family's adjustment. One will be where you're actually doing language study. Um, we were strongly encouraged not to come to the state where the hospital was um, because the hospital was so short-staffed and everybody could see that if we were doing language study there, it would be absolutely an irresistible temptation for them to call Christo and just say, oh, just a couple patients, just a couple patients. And they said, you know, you're never going to learn Hindi if you do that because we, we know ourselves. We know we're going to pull you in. And so we chose to do language study kind of on the other side of India. Um, first of all, that protected us from that pressure of the hospital trying to rip us away from our language study time. And then the other thing we found out was we were in a city that was up in the mountains, and that particular city, um, there was a place to study language, but then there was also like some restaurants because Indians vacation there. And for our kids, that really ended up being a blessing for us. We serve in a place that's very rural, underdeveloped, underserved, and so for the kids to make the leap from Dallas, Texas to Roxal, Bihar would have been really hard. So it was a good in-between stepping stone for them to say, okay, this is India. I kept telling the kids, this is India, but this is not real India. <laughs> this place, you can buy pizza and you can buy french fries. This is not real India, but it's still India, so that's good. Um, so think about you know, your proximity to the hospital you'll be serving at, but also if there's an in-between place that can help your kids make that adjustment at a more graduated pace. Um, and then another thing you'll need to realize is how very much your kids will need time with you. I really struggled with this because I was doing all this running around to set up our home. Um, but there were several days when I actually, I just had to say to Christo, you have to do it on your own. I'm sorry. And I just had to sit myself down on the couch and hold the kids and let them talk through what they were experiencing, what they were starting to grieve, just the huge adjustment they were going through. And so we really had to push ourselves to also make ourselves available to our kids. All the other things can seem so urgent, and you, you really struggle to get yourself to slow down for the sake of your kids, but we really found that our kids needed that time with us. Um, and then this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before with your timing. You may have an urge to feel like, oh, we're going to land in our country on Friday night and... Then there's the weekend, and then the kids will start school Monday, and it'll be great, and they'll be busy with school, and I can be busily doing my work. But we found that it took about a month for our kids to be ready to go back to schooling. So if you, again, as you're looking at those calendars in both countries, if you can land in the country of service and have several weeks, a month, even two months, before your kids have to take on a new school system, that can really help them adjust. And then another thing we did was we worked hard to establish routines for our kids. And so sometimes as you're moving, you feel like we're giving it all up. And so it's understandable why you're feeling that. Everything is going to change. The food's going to change. The language, the scenery, everything is going to change for you. But there can be some things in your home that can really help your kids. So, for example, if you have pancakes every Saturday morning, in your suitcase, pack what you need to make pancakes. And if you read them a bedtime story every single night, make sure that in your carry-on you have a few kids' books that you can read to them before they go to bed. So there are little things you can do that will be routines your kids already know that will help them adjust, um, but that you can also find will 
be transportable around the world and between different cultures. So one of the things that we really got worried about was how do we balance uh, work, which is very demanding. I'm working in an ICU where there are always people that are dying and patients and family members and staff is always calling me saying, Dr. Christo, this person is just extubated themselves and they can't breathe. You know, how do I make time for that? And the fact that I've got three children and my wife who also really need me, and how do we meld these two things together? Because I said, if I can't do those two things, uh, it'll be very difficult for us to be here long term because I don't want to lose my family in the process of trying to serve God and serve the people that we're allowed to. So a couple of things we learned about living life that I think really made a lot of impact in terms of making this, uh, this balance between work and home life uh, more, uh, more ba- I guess, yeah, more manageable. Uh, we wanted to share that with you. Uh, one is you have to remember that you will never feel like you have enough time for your work, your ministry, and your family. It's just not going to happen, right? Your schedule is always going to be unpredictable. You'll always have more patients to see than you'll ever have time. Your kids will have needs that you won't always be able to meet. So the reality is you have to realize that you have to give yourself some grace. It's not going to be a perfect thing. It was going to be a third, third, third for ministry, family, and work. It just doesn't happen. In some weeks, I was in the hospital 90% of the time. And other weeks, I could spend more time with my family. So you have to give yourself some grace. Uh, but I think one thing that's really important, as we talked to many missionaries, one of the big worries or fears we had was we didn't want our children at the end of the time that they spent within our home, to able to hate missions and to hate the life that we put them through, to say, I will never go into missions because of what my family made them do. And in fact, we met lots of kids, lots of missionary kids that hated their parents and hated what they had made them go through. And we said, what can we do now that makes them feel like they're part of our team and that we're in this together and it isn't just, oh, dad's got this calling and we're here because he dragged us to the other side of the world, that we're all part of the same mission. So one of the things that we really did together was to involve our kids in our work and ministry. What do I mean by that? Um, One of the things that I would do with the kids is that on the weekends, I had a little more extra time. I didn't feel so rushed. And so I would take the kids and they would go on rounds in the hospital with me or in the evenings couple of patients come up and say, oh, I'm going to go check on the ICU patients. Hey, Luke, why don't you come along with me? And then we'd have two hours around together. We'd see all the patients together. And that was really good for them to see what was I doing with all the time that I was not spending with them. And when I would talk about patients and the fact I told them, hey, I want you to pray for this lady that's come in who just delivered a baby, but she's dying because she's got, you know, rheumatic heart disease. And I'm asking them to pray. It was really important for them to see those patients and to see look, the work that we're doing actually is real people and there's an impact we're making. And so that was really something I looked forward to was having the kids with me. And we just take turns. So Karna would go one day, Luke would go another day, Vera could go another day. And that was, for me, some time to spend with them. Um, Second thing was uh, we wanted our family to feel like the ministry was all of us and not just me being at the hospital. And one of the things that was really helpful was Melissa really kind of helped to spearhead this. Uh, we had lots of patients in the ICU that were quite sick. Some of them would be on the ventilator for two, three weeks. And it was really a joyous time when they would finally leave the hospital. So this particular lady that's here, um, she had taken a bunch of pesticide and she was paralyzed. She was on the ventilator. We had the tracheostomy. She was on the vent for about three weeks. And so this is about four weeks into her stay. And we're finally sending her home. And Melissa and the kids have been praying for this family for weeks now, waiting for her to get out of the hospital. So on the day that they left, uh, Melissa had this thing where her and Karna and Luke and Vivek, they would work on like baking some treats. So they would make some cookies or some muffins, and we'd have a discharge party for the patient. And the kids would come up there, and we'd pass out the treats, and then we'd pray together with the family, and we'd have a time to celebrate. And that was really good for the kids to see, look, you know, the fact that my dad spent so much time at the hospital, it isn't for nothing. And we can also play a part in this because we're there to be able to celebrate with them. And that really meant a lot for the kids and for and especially for Karna, she was really a kind of a spearhead for all the muffin making and cupcake projects. So it was really good for her to do something that she enjoyed where she could also mention the patient. So this is a, a little video. So there's Car- Melissa there, and there's my daughter Karna with a lot of our staff. And we're just thanking the Lord for saving this woman's life. And that, that song, what it says is, uh, we're, we thank you, Lord, for the gifts that you've given to her. And that was really a a wonderful way for us to celebrate and for our kids to feel like they were part of the work we were doing. Uh, Second thing in terms of this, um, one of the things I realized, I did a lot of traveling, specifically to medical colleges around India, to talk to young medical students, to encourage them to come work at a mission hospital. 
And I found that really meaningful because I got one-on-one time with students. And, but the problem was that would take me away from home. You know, when I travel, that'd be three or four days I'm on the road. And that's, again, time that Melissa's alone by the kids. And that's a really difficult time when I'm not home. So one of the things we would do is that every time I travel, I'd take one of the kids with me. And that was like daddy-son or daddy-daughter date for four days. And they really looked forward to it. They literally loved it because it was four days they got with just dad by himself. And especially as we're traveling on the train, 24 hours, flight, car, whatever it might be, they're getting to spend time with me. And I get to talk to them about their work their, or my work, their school, their friends. And that was really a good time of bonding with me and uh, something that I really enjoyed. And on top of that, what I found is that it really opened up doors for our ministry. So, for example, this is a group of students I visited about a, a hospital about four hours from us. So our little son, this is Vivek, uh, he came. And what I found is that whenever the kids came, all the kids, all the students I was talking to suddenly would open up very quickly. Now, usually they're very shy, they're very reserved, they don't want to talk. But as soon as Vivek came, they're like, oh, can we go buy him some chips and some cookies and uh, give him some Coke? And Vivek's like, Dad, I'm allowed to have Coke. I said, oh, that's fine. We're on vacation, right? And so he loved it, you know, and the kids loved being able to interact with him. And I found that I was able to have so many more conversations because I took my kids along with them. And they had never seen a doctor do that before. And so that was a really neat way for them to be involved. So here's Vivek in the center of attendance, seven girls, you know, preening over him, looking over him, helping him to read this book. And uh, that was really a fun time for them. And they got to see, you know, the students we were meeting and they got to travel and see parts of the country, and I got really one-on-one time with them. So it was really worthwhile, something we really enjoyed. Another thing we did together to involve the kids was really making our home an open home and using our home to host a lot of functions for the young staffs working at this hospital we were at. So for us, that meant you know we were willing to host parties for people if someone was having a birthday. We did a lot of game nights and movie nights where we would invite people to come, and we would play the games, but then have a lot of time to just converse with them. Um, a lot of times, Karn and I would organize what we called Girls' Night in. There, in the city we were in, there's like there's nowhere to go and nothing to do, honestly, other than the hospital. And so we would have young nurses and young female junior doctors come home with us. And then we would do things like we'd have a, we had a cupcake decorating night. We had a craft making night. We would just have different themes and then invite them to come in, um, enjoy the time with one another, but then also get to know our family better. The next thing I think that will make it bearable or make at least some balance in your life is to give yourself a break. Um, this is something that someone had told us, and we uh, religiously followed this, and I think in many ways – Uh, It really kept our sanity together. Um, We found that it was almost impossible to take a break while you're at the hospital. There's always another sick patient to be seen or an event to be attended. So even if I said, this is my day off, it was never my day off. Because if someone sick came in and there's a young doctor that's trying to intubate a patient that's like a two-day-old preemie, and he can't get the tube in, he calls me, and I can't tell him, I'm sorry, it's my day off, Call, call somebody else, Right? And we didn't want to put them in that position. We just felt very strongly that when a young doctor is training and they're struggling, they're asking you for help, if we're there, we should be there to help them out. But that put a lot of restrictions on our time, right? Because if that was my one night off, that was the night I was going to plan to have with the kids, if I go up to intubate that patient with a baby and get them on the ventilator, that's two hours I'm going to suck at the hospital, and there goes my evening. So what we found is that trying to take breaks on the hospital campus just never worked, right? You just always get called in. So what we decided to do instead was we scheduled in time away, and we were very methodical about this. What we said is every three months, we would take a week off, and every three months that week, we actually left the campus, went to a place where nobody could get a hold of us. That means we traveled usually at least 50 to 100 kilometers away, so that even if they could call me, I couldn't get there in time to do anything. So that was really important, because then I didn't feel guilty when they would call, because I said, you know, it's okay, my phone can be turned up, because I can't come and see this patient anyway. And they knew, and what we would do is that when I left for a three-month break, during that three-month or that one week off, we would already schedule our next break so that I knew there was something to look forward to that would help me to survive the next two months. So there was a time when a bunch of the doctors left, and I was the only physician at the hospital, so I was taking call for two and a half months in a row. So I didn't sleep any night because every night I would get called in. And the only thing that kept me going was knowing that at the end of three months, I had a week when I would leave the hospital campus, and that would be one week when I could sleep and spend time with my family And that's the only thing that allowed us to get together and say, look, I'm really sorry, but 
hold on for two more weeks and then we will have some respite, some way to get through. So that was something that we found very helpful was to be able to take a week off every three months. And we took a bigger break. Every six months, we took about three to four weeks off, almost a month off. And uh, what we would do is on those times, that was time for us to travel. So uh, we were in India, so there were lots of countries to visit around there, and we scheduled that into our budget. And we said, uh, so this is the kids in Malaysia, and this is the kids in Sri Lanka. And those were times we really enjoyed and enjoyed time together as a family and really helped us to rejuvenate ourselves so we could go back to the grind of working there and the emotional and spiritual darkness that kind of surrounded us all the time. So it was really helpful. And I think, you know, the only reason why we didn't leave India burnt out was because of these breaks in between that helped us at least keep our sanity. So I would really encourage yourself, whatever you do, schedule a time and just schedule it in and block it off. Because if you say, well, I'll kind of decide when I get there, the problem is somebody will always have another vacation they need to take. So you schedule it beforehand so that it's already on paper. And they say, look, I've got to take this off. I've already booked my tickets. That was always my excuse, right? When I came back, they're like, oh, can you stay an extra week? I said, sorry, tickets are already booked. I have to go. And they just learn to work around it. And the, pro- and the reality is they'll learn to work around it as long as your, you know, your routine and your schedule is set together. So that made it much more likely that uh, you will survive on the mission field. We also wanted to share with you just some of the overarching principles that were taught to us that really helped us kind of filter the decisions we were having to make and honestly that we're still having to make. The first thing would be um, to realize a life in missions is one where you are inviting into your life a lot of instability, a lot of transitions that you otherwise would not have if you stayed in the U.S. for the rest of your career. So our thought was always, okay, we know that there are some things we can't change, but the things we can change, we're going to try and change those in such a way that they provide more stability for our family. So a lot of people look at our life and say, oh my goodness, you've moved all over the place. You moved to Minnesota, you moved to Texas, you moved to India. And I would say, no, no, no. We did those big moves, but then within those places we moved to, we never moved. We lived in the same condo in Minnesota from the day we moved there until the day we moved away. We bought a house in Dallas that we lived in from the day we moved back to Dallas until the day we moved out before we left for India. So we sought stability by always staying in the same place within those different cities we've lived in. We also found that for our kids, annual conferences have become a huge part of the stability for them. Uh, CMDA offers a conference every year in either Greece or Thailand, which will help you stay up on your CME hours. And in addition to doing that for you as a medical professional, they will also have a conference for your spouse and for your kids. And so for our kids, to our great surprise, that has been one of the points in their mind that shows them life is not totally out of control. They will always say, in all the even years, we go to Greece in April. In the odd years, we go to Thailand in February. And at those conferences, those places are familiar, but more than that, they've met the same kids at each conference. And so they feel that... You know, sometimes when they look at the people they left behind in the U.S., they feel like, oh, our life is so different. But at these CMDA conferences, they feel like, oh... All these kids are just like me. Their parents are putting them through the exact same thing you guys are putting me through. So they've really loved that. Um, Another thing that you will find is even though you might be saying goodbye to some traditions because of the transition your family is going through, you will also have opportunities to create new traditions with your kids. Um, We had a visitor come to see us in India, and our 10-year-old son, Luke, was saying to this, you know, they were saying, oh, what is your life like here? And he said, well, every December we go to South India because it's really cold in North India in December and it's still nice and warm in South India. So every December we go to South India. And I said, no, we don't. And then I said, oh, well, actually we have done that for the past three Decembers. So it was not without reason that he felt like that was what defined our Decembers. Um, And so some of those things you will feel like, oh, we sort of stumbled into that. That's how I feel about the fact that to our kids, December means we leave cold North India and go to warm South India. Um, Another thing that was really helpful for us is that we had family members on both sides of our family that were willing to travel in order to see us. We had some people that came all the way to India, but for us another thing that really worked well was using Europe as a meeting point. 
So the flight is about half the distance to Europe from the U.S., so especially for older parents, that can be a much more manageable undertaking. And for us, it wasn't as long of a trip all the way back to the U.S. And again, if we were already traveling there for something else, we could tie on a family visit. And that allowed the kids, we honestly never had to say to our kids that it would be a year before we would see someone from our family or a good friend from church. It was always like, oh, in three months your grandparents are coming to Greece and we'll see them there. In six months we have this close friend that's coming to see us. And so I cannot tell you how thankful I am that for the kids, they never had a huge amount of time that they had to say, oh, we won't be seeing anyone from home that we know. Um, Another thing that proved to be really important to us is we decided on the advice of an older missionary family that we were going to pick a transit city. And for us, that became New Delhi. So every time we flew in and out of India, we flew in and out of New Delhi. And we always stayed in the same hotel, which was in a walkable neighborhood, and it had a swimming pool. So it had some perks in and of itself. But that allowed us, it made the travel itself easier and less stressful because we had some things we could rely on. And then in our case, when we had the deportation in April, it really was important to the kids that we went We entered through Delhi, and so we were going back to that same hotel. And so in this just horrible set of unexpected circumstances, we were so thankful that one of the things we didn't have to worry about was where we would stay and the neighborhood we were staying in, because we had been to that neighborhood and that hotel over and over and over again on our travels. And then another thing um, that can possibly be a point of stability for your family is education. Uh, We actually chose to homeschool our kids because we knew that the mission hospital we were looking at would not be able to provide education for our kids. We would have been looking at a boarding school that was about 36 hours of travel from the hospital. And so we chose to homeschool. And... You know, I for years I was going around saying, oh, we're homeschooling because it's so flexible and I can let the kids stay up late and we can take all these random vacations. So I stand by that. I homeschool because it's flexible. But now my speech has changed and I say, and it's also going to provide you so much stability because for our kids, we homeschooled for some time in the U.S. and then we homeschooled in India. And that was the long-term plan, but it's not happening like we thought. And so the fact that when we returned to the U.S., we continued homeschooling, that has been something that they have fallen back on again and again as they've talked to people about what they've been through this year. And, you know, they will tell people, it's been really hard and horrible and we're so sad, but some things are okay. We're back in the same house. We're still homeschooling. We're still on the same homeschool year. And so things like that have really helped them. Then another thing that has really driven our decisions with the kids is just recognizing the loss and grief that they are going through. Sometimes it can be easy as a parent to really feel like, oh, God has called us to this place, and I'm so excited, and I can't wait to get there, and overlook the fact that your kids might be feeling like you're making those decisions, and you're just kind of dragging them along. Um, so we worked really hard to just talk through those the choices we were making with our kids trying to give them a sense that not only were Christo and I called to Bihar, but God also had a plan for our family that involved them being in Bihar. And then also, we allowed them as much as we could to really grieve their loss. With our daughter especially, we went through a time period when it was honestly one of the hardest parenting time periods I've ever been through when she, for about three hours every evening, would just sob and sob and sob about she missed America, she missed our friends. Um, And so it was really hard, and I had a lot of people telling me, like, if you would pray for her, she would get over it. And I had another group of people saying, oh, she's just pushing your button. She knows it upsets you, so she does this to, like, irritate you. And I really felt convicted that she was grieving the loss that she was walking through. Um, And so I'll give another plug for the CMDA conferences. We traveled to the CMDA conference in Greece, and she, like, literally the day we got on the plane to leave for Greece, she did that three-hour crying and being so upset about what she had lost. And we got to Greece, and I just, I was wiped out as a parent. It was, like, the lowest part of my parenting ever. Um... 
But then, like, by lunch of the first day, I had a different kid, and she came running up to me, and she said, Mom, you'll never believe it. I met this girl, and she used to live in Atlanta, and it was amazing. It's pretty awesome, just like Dallas. And then her parents made her move to Kenya. And so basically, we're the same. Like, we're from big, wonderful southern cities, and our parents made us move overseas. And so... I said, okay, well, that's good. And so she ran up. She said, I'm really sorry. I can't actually eat with you at lunch anymore because I have to go eat with her because we have so much to talk about. <laughs> and so she connected with this one little girl that was the same age as her, and they, like, literally put a lifetime of talking into this conference. So we finished the conference. We do some travel. We're standing in the Athens airport ready to go to New Delhi, and I'm, like, cramped up tight because I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm you know, I'm scared about taking her back to India. I'm scared about how she'll respond. I really don't know what I'm getting. And she walked up to me and she said, Oh, Mom, we're going home to India. And I said, We are? Because <laughs> two weeks ago it wasn't home to you. And she said, Yes, I can't wait. And she went off to just spout off about all the things she loved about India, which I had never, ever heard her verbalize. And so God really used that conference to heal her, to allow her to see that she was not the only kid in the world going through these transitions. And also, I really am thankful that we never tried to shut down her grief. We let her go through expressing that loss that was hurting her. And then another thing that you'll find is, Along with the grief and the loss, that's not all that it is. It's also an absolutely wonderful life. And so at different times, we've really encouraged our kids to just look at how God has blessed them. Look at kind of the perks of their life that they've experienced because we moved to India. So as we were talking about earlier, they've gotten to see all sorts of places in Asia. They've got to have unique experiences of experiencing a culture and experiencing what that culture celebrates and values because of living there. So we've also tried to, you know, at different times, lift their eyes up and let them see. It's not all lost. That is there. That's genuine. We don't begrudge you that hurt, but also there's wonderful things about it, and God will bless you in this life of transition. So we wanted to kind of end this with a video um, you might think a lot of things we talked about is hard, it's difficult, it's going to be really challenging for your family, it's going to be challenging on your marriage, uh, but God can do something really amazing, and we would encourage you uh, and, and, and exhort you that this is a worthwhile calling, and you have to make wise decisions, uh, but if you do it well, not only you, your wife, but your kids, your whole family can be part of this mission, and you can enjoy it and thrive in that culture. And so I just want to show you a little bit about uh, the impact uh, Duncan Hospital and uh, the, the change that God has been able to make in the lives of people there because people have been willing to commit and come to hard places. So we'll just finish this video and we'll have a few minutes for questions. <laughs> Good 
भी है और ये तीन साल के थी तो फ्रेंड से इसका स्टेट हुआ था और उसका दहना हाथ और बाएं पैर इसका कट गया था और वहाँ से गांव के गांव वाला लोग उसको उठाकर लाए और हम लोग लेकर इसको गांव वाला लोग ऐसे पापा ने मिलकर डॉक्टर में ले गए इसको खाना की आठ दिन डॉक्टर में रहूंगे और उसके बाद जब हम लोग आपस आ रहे थे तो वहाँ पर प्रभुषण ने हमको बताया कि यहाँ पर सीवीआर है और इसी से बच्चों को मदद करते हैं तो वहाँ पर ले जाइए सर ने बताया हम लोग गेट लगाए तो भैया लोग से बात हुआ हमेशा इसे बच्चे जो या हम सोचते हैं कि हमारे भी बेटी जैसे बड़े या मैं उसी सबको बच्चे बड़े और उसके लिए हम सहायता करें हम मदद करें जैसे भी होते Thank God for giving Duncan in my life, and thank God for the professors I have got here, what they have done in my life, both spiritually and professionally also. Here I have gathered many stories, many stories of the patients, so that I'll carry it to the rest of my life, so that I can tell to the patients wherever I can what the God of Duncan did and what He can do for you also. Thank you again for giving us the opportunity to share a little bit of our heart and the story and the lessons we've learned. Um, we have a blog. We write fairly regularly. You can look at that. It's just kristonmelissa.com. Because of the security issues with our deportation, it's password protected. It's just capital D, Duncan, 2016. Or you can send us an email, and we'll be, of course, here at the conference uh, until Saturday. So if you see us and you want specific questions you want to ask us in person, please feel free to do so. Uh, we would love to meet with you and talk with you, or just send us an email if there's any of the concerns or things that we can answer for you. So I think our time's up, uh, but we'll stick around if there's any other specific questions you want to ask, and uh, we would love to talk with you in person. So thanks for the opportunity.